Good morning. Thank you, Mike, for that prayer. <clears throat> so when the Europeans started coming to North America, the word, the key word, was self-reliant. Coming from these crowded cities that they'd been experiencing, now entering into this vast land, it was when uh, the, the man came in, the grizzly Adams type, with his rifle and his axe, he was ready to conquer that new frontier. The government had an interesting way they were going to go about giving land out to these Europeans. They actually put it into large sections and then quartered those sections. And these early pioneers were so excited about having this space that where do you think they would want to put their homestead? They put it right smack in the middle of that quarter where they could just kind of stay away from everybody. You, know, you wouldn't really have to, to look at anyone or, or see anybody. And they thought that this was going to be paradise. Only they soon found out that it wasn't. As a matter of fact, one photographer went out to start photographing the early frontiers who had settled in this land. And after he took the photographs, he described the people he saw like this. He said they were weird men, <laughs> wild-eyed women, and haunted looking children. And before long, these settlers realized that being right smack in the middle of their land, isolated, where they couldn't see anybody, was actually not where they wanted to be. So they started moving into the quarters, the quarters and in, in, in the corners that were close to each other, so they'd have more community with the people that were right there around them. And you had four families in that were living together, sharing life and death, sharing joy and sorrow, abundance and want. But together like that, in those closer places, they had a better chance of making it. You see, as much as we love the story of rugged individualism, the Mad Max type, it really doesn't work. And for the Christian who may be attempting to live life separated and isolated, it is not going to work, particularly if in that isolation your life becomes void of prayer, void of connection to God. You see, this is what I think we try to do sometimes. And, I, and we all know what this is. Power strip, you take this, you, you plug items into it, and you expect them to come on. But the only way that's going to work is if this is plugged into the wall, right? So when we try to get through the Christian life, and we try and keep ourselves disconnected to God, when we try to be self-reliant, it's like, it's like we're doing this, and, and we're expecting everything to work right. Now, see, that's just not going to work. If we try to be self-reliant and we attempt to be self-dependent and we try and attempt a life that does not have prayer in it, we're going to be sorely disappointed. We're going to ask ourselves, why isn't this working? And the, sub the subject I want to talk about this morning, it'll come up in a second, um, is how do I keep from becoming self-dependent. How do I keep from becoming self-dependent? The passage we're going to look at today comes from Mark chapter 14. It's a passage I'm sure that you're familiar with, at least many of you. This is the story of Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And we're going to start out with Mark chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 32 through 50. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 50. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. You may be seated. We're continuing our walk towards Christ's death and his resurrection, one of those most holy uh, of Christian holidays. And on this journey, we're adopting a theme. It was a theme that actually started uh, during World War II when the leaders in British government were anticipating that there was going to be air raids and heavy losses. Winston Churchill started this campaign of posters. One of those became fairly popular, keep calm and carry on. And as we're walking alongside these disciples, they too are going to witness persecution like they've never seen before in their lives. They'll see the people around them being persecuted. And we, like those disciples walking beside them, need to adopt a similar theme with a, a slight twist on it to keep calm and stay faithful. These disciples who are about to lose their leader are going to have to keep their eyes on that which is unchanging. And they're going to keep faithful and stay faithful to the faith that Christ had given them. So this morning, I want to start talking about this subject of dependency. Because part of staying faithful is having this constant 
dependency on God that frankly is fairly hard to gauge sometimes. Well, how dependent am I being on the Lord? So I'd like to talk about the subject this way. Again, focusing on the characters in the narrative, sort of like last week. And we'll start with Jesus, and we'll see that he remained prayerfully dependent on God. <clears throat> then we'll look at the disciples. Again, they're the bad example, like they were last week. They were prayerless and unfaithful. We saw they were self-confident. And then finally, we'll turn the question to us. How do we keep from becoming self-dependent? We'll talk about three ways to keep from becoming self-dependent. I want to first look at this example of Christ. A number of things have occurred before we actually get to the narrative that we read. He had taken the disciples to the upper room, uh, and there he instituted communion with them. He had this last supper with all the disciples. He announced that one of them was going to betray him. That would be Judas. They share this meal together, and then they move on to the Mount of Olives. They're making their way to Gethsemane, but while they're on the Mount of Olives, Judas had already left. He said that they, these 11 disciples, would take offense at his sufferings and death. And to avoid that same treatment, he said they were all going to deny any association with him. That there was going to be this sort of temporary disloyalty. Then they come to Gethsemane, and look what he says while he's praying in verse 36. Christ said, Abba, Father, this very intimate Abba, it's like, almost like saying, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. But then look at the words. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's undertaking a depth of pain and sorrow at this moment that human beings can scarcely begin to realize. And it's while he's in the guard, he's going to take on the entire sin debt that humanity had ever incurred in the past and that they would ever incur in the future. In that moment, Christ became the murderer in the eyes of the father. He became the rapist. He became the child molester. He became the robber. All of those things are being put squarely on his shoulders as though he was the one who had committed all of those. This is called the imputation of sin. All of it being placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And how in the world would that feel? Christ said it made him sorrowful. It made him sorrowful till, to death. But this was the kind of trust that Christ had in the will of the Father. Uh, one man describes uh, what it would have been like for Christ, a guy named Wayne Grudem. He said, all that Jesus hated most deeply was poured out fully upon him. Now, you know the pain and guilt that you felt when you've done something wrong in your humanity. In that moment, they say we're actually for a moment feeling the separation of the Father when we know we've done something we shouldn't have. Multiply that by billions and billions. This is what Christ was enduring in this moment, and he, but he knew this was the way. And in his honest humanity, he said, take this cup from me, but then what? Yet not my will, but yours be done. He remains prayerful. In verse 35, it says, 
he throws himself on the ground. In verse 39, it said he prayed the same thing. He repeated the prayer, let this cup pass from me. He didn't pray that just once. You know, when you're in the depths of despair, and when it seems like nothing around you is making any sense, and you feel some separation, but you, you can't escape the thing that you most want to escape. See, this is when we follow the example of Christ. You throw yourself on the ground, and you pray to God, God, if it's possible, take away that diagnosis, that sickness in my child, this impossible financial burden. But not my will, but yours be done. Christ was the example of dependence on his Father in every way. And this is how we enter into the kingdom of God. Not by anything we can do on our own, but by total dependence on God himself. Total dependence on what Christ has done on our behalf. So Christ remains in this confident dependence on God's way, his will. But then we get to the disciples. The disciples are a different story. Because they're going to choose this way of self-confidence, this way of uh, self-reliance, this self-dependence. And we saw from last week that they're not getting it. They want power in God's new kingdom. And they won't yet accept that they have to go the way of Christ. And we see the failure, particularly of one disciple, uh, Peter, back in verse 29. Jesus said that all of the disciples were going to desert him, but he was the one that spoke up. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth today, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And it says all of them said the same thing. They're all trusting in their own ability that they're going to remain faithful to Christ. Now they've been warned. Jesus has already warned them that this isn't going to be the case. And now he's going to teach them through this incident, all of them through this, in, this incident and, and their inability to stay awake when Jesus needed them the most, that their self-reliance and their self-dependence is not going to cut it. He's going to call them out down in verses 37 and 38. It says, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the question is then put to whoever was going to read this in the future. Mark is, is giving us this, this message, this story, because the question is put to you, will you obey the command to be alert, to pray in the crisis, and not give in to despair and faithlessness? And also to be very concerned about overconfidence. Trusting in God and, and not yourself can be very, very difficult. It's a lifelong journey. It's one that I feel like I've constantly gone back and forth. And on one hand, it's like, God, I know. How many times am I saying it? Lord, you hold the future in your hands. 
Oh, how's that 401k doing? <laughs> God, you can do it all. I've seen you time and time again. You've shown me how faithful you are. You got me through seminary with no debt. You got my wife through seminary with no debt. Let me just check that 403b, those stock prices. I'm back and forth. It's not easy to trust God and yet walk with wisdom. Believe me, I'm not telling you don't have a retirement plan. I'm saying put, put zero faith in your retirement plan in comparison to the faith that you have in God. We don't know what the next few years are going to look like. We've always got to walk the line of trusting God and making wise decisions. And something Dwight Moody said, something that should serve as a warning to us, when a man thinks he has got a good deal of strength and is self-confident, you may look for his downfall. It may be years before it comes to light, but it has already commenced. Look out. If you catch yourself not needing God so much. And that's a pretty easy thing to diagnose. We'll talk about that in just a moment, because I want to go to this last part. Talk about us. Well, how do we keep from becoming self-dependent, self-reliant? I want to talk about three ways here. And I want to, let's look first of all, what these disciples were unable to do, which is first just to stay alert, to stay alert. This was the command that Christ gave to these disciples, and it's a command, it's, it's repeated throughout the scriptures. And why is that? Well, primarily because we have an enemy in Satan who is smarter and craftier. He's been around a long, long time, knows us better than we know ourselves, knows exactly when to hit us, with what temptation, how to make it subtle enough that you barely even know that it's there. And he loves to see overconfident Christians who think they have this sin defeated or it's no longer a struggle for them or they can just let their guard down. I remember being part of a men's group back in West Virginia. And I'll never forget one of the men said, you know, he said, he was, he was fairly newly married. It's been two, three years. And he said, well, I no longer need to fear having an affair on my wife. And when he said that, almost in unison, everybody looked at him and said, that is one of the most dangerous things you can ever say. The moment you think you've got some sin licked, look out. Be alert. Because it's crouching right there at the door. And oh, if Satan can sink his teeth into an overconfident Christian. There was a, an old uh, priest back in the 13th century, named St. Bonaventure. And he made this statement. He said, when you are too sure of yourself, you are less on guard against the enemy. Be alert, therefore, for the devil, who, if he can claim even one hair of your head, will lose no time in making a braid of it. Now, he takes more hairs from some than others. <laughs> but if he gets one chance one opportunity, and man, he's always looking to get his foot in the door, especially in a church. Oh, if he can divide us up over any little thing, he will seize the opportunity. Part of being alert is asking yourself the question, have I prayed today? 
Have I spent time with God's people and other believers lately? And if you haven't, well, why not? Do you have an unconfessed sin? Are you staying away from God's people because of some sense of, of shame? Satan will want you to be isolated. So be alert. Be watchful. Look out. And then secondly, pray with dependence. Pray with dependence. And what does that mean? I mean, pray as though your very life depends on it before God. You know, we, um, we eat sometimes because we enjoy it, sometimes because we're starving, we know we have to do it to live. We, we breathe oxygen because we have to have it or else we're going to die. That is the category that we need to put prayer into. This is how we ought to be praying. And I, I've said this before, but the very best indicator in your life as to whether or not you are depending on God will come squarely down to how much you are praying to God. If you question, am I depending on God or is it on me? Then ask yourself, well, have I prayed about this? If you have not prayed about it, I will guarantee you that is the first big red light on your dashboard that you're not depending on God for this. That you are being self-reliant. And it's a discipline. It's not easy to do. I can't tell you times I've fallen asleep praying. And yeah, you question, is he, is he really hearing me? You just trust that he is. We have to have the intervention of God, the Holy Spirit, in our life. This book called Prayer, by the way, if you've, not, if you've not read a book called Prayer by Tim Keller, I would recommend it. He does a real historical survey of prayer in that book. He pulls in a lot of different authors. And he describes that in his own life, he said it really wasn't until the second half of his life that he began to get prayer. Now, he'd been a pastor since he was in his 20s. But he said he had to. In the fall of 99, he was teaching a Bible study course in the book of Psalms. And he said it was then he realized he was barely scratching the surface when it came to prayer. Then there were dark weeks later. Uh, he talked about being in New York after 9-11. He said the whole city sank into sort of a clinical depression. And then even as it rallied, he had other problems for his own family. His, his wife was struggling with the effects of Crohn's disease, and he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And at some point during that, his wife, Kathy, came to me and said, we have got to start doing something, something they'd never done before. He said, she said, we have got to start praying together on a nightly basis. Every night we have to do this. And she said something to her, or rather, she said something to him, Kathy said something to Tim, along these lines. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget you would never miss. She said, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we were facing. She said, I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds. 
See, don't think of prayer as just this, this thing you do every now and then that you're proud of yourself and you give yourself a pat on the back. See, I'm kind of that way with flossing. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll look at the calendar, oh, there's a dentist appointment coming up. Mm, yeah, I better, oh, I just, you know, you really just feel, or, or working out. Hey, all right, I squeezed a walk in. Do not put prayer in that category. Think of it as essential, as a must, as a, I cannot face this day unless I do this, or I cannot go to bed before I do this, because my life depends on it. See, that needs to be our attitude toward prayer. It's oxygen. It's food. And then finally, look beyond this world. Oh, I, that was the, oh, I had it up there in case you want to read it. Let's move on. Um, number three, look beyond this world. Look beyond this world. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, last week, I took a moment to walk through just how difficult a time the disciples were having with what Jesus was, was telling them. He kept telling them, the Son of Man is going to be killed and will be raised from the dead. He said it again and again and again. Then they get into an argument, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you still don't get it. A woman came on the scene. She got it. But these proud disciples, who I'm sure thought this woman was beneath them, couldn't teach them anything, still didn't get it. They were stuck. Peter insisted that he wouldn't let Jesus just be taken. They just didn't get it. You see, if we just look to our current circumstances as Christians, we're not going to get it either. As a matter of fact, if we just looked at our current circumstances, none of us would be believers. Because we are the children of God, but it often doesn't look or feel like it because just like everyone else we get sick we got to wrestle to break bad habits we still struggle in our marriages we watch our children make uh, immature and foolish decisions in the end just like everyone else we're going to die so we have to understand that the values and the culture around us are not our culture and values we are different even though we go through the same struggles we do it differently because even that dark, miserable, disappointing circumstance of life is something God is using to make you into the person that you've always wanted to be. But it's a lifelong process. I talked to a guy this past week, as a matter of fact, and uh, he's one of the happiest guys typically you'd ever meet. And he said, this is the first time I've ever really struggled with depression. Just in the past few months. But the joy of the Christian cannot be dependent on life circumstances. It must be dependent upon something that transcends us and our world. Now, we can't see this kingdom of God yet, so we have to trust that it's coming. But in the meantime, we see the world around us, and we see it changing, and we see it decaying. As a matter of fact, there's a hymn called Abide With Me. It's a Scottish hymn. And there's a line in that hymn that says, change and decay, all around I see. And that's the world that we live in, but it's different for the Christian. I love the way Warren Wearsby commented on this hymn. He said, change and decay are enemies that most people fear. When we are young, change is a treat, but as we grow older, change becomes a threat. 
So when Jesus Christ is in control of your life, you need never fear change or decay. When you are part of eternity, the decay of the material only hastens the perfecting of the spiritual. If you walk by faith in Christ. So it is different for the Christian. Right now we are part of eternity. It'll continue on. After we die, we'll go into the presence of God. So don't get stuck in this world around us. You see, we're, we're made for a better world. One that we can't fully see yet. One that's not yet here. So putting this all together, depend on God carefully and prayerfully. Depend on God carefully. Stay alert. Look out. Ask yourself, am I praying? Don't end up like this, this kind of deal we've already talked about. Being plugged into yourselves is not going to be helpful at all. In closing, I want to talk about a a poem that was written by a, a British poet. His name's William Ernest Henley. He wrote a poem called Invictus. And you may or may not be familiar with that poem, but you probably have heard the last two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, in popular culture, those two lines are meant to be like the heroic stance that somebody is taking against some evil power, even like death itself. And you, they, they state those two lines. As a matter of fact, a journalist was talking about Henley. And he said, it's a final and terrible act of defiance against God. The horror might indeed have awaited Henley, but he would go there on his own terms, leaving spit sliding down his maker's face. And then for a hundred years, this has inspired people. As a matter of fact, Clint Eastwood wrote a movie called Invictus, talking about the will of the South African rugby team. Perhaps more hauntingly, Tim McVeigh wrote the word Invictus right after he had caused that bombing in Oklahoma City. But then the pastor, Charles Spurgeon, in the closing words of his final sermon, he meditated on this line from Invictus, and he put a really good spin on it. He said this, Every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest into your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Please pray with me. Almighty God, how we so easily get wrapped up in our own sense of self, self-confident. Lord, it just sneaks up on us. And if we're not aware, Lord, if we don't stay alert, before we know it, we're living a prayerless life with no dependence upon you. God, I pray that we would have a sense of urgency to stay connected to you in prayer. 
that we wouldn't plug into ourselves thinking that we can handle it, that we are the captain of our own souls and the masters of our own fate. God, I pray that we would repent of any self-dependence or reliance that may be hiding in our hearts. And God, I ask that if there's someone here today that has not made you the captain of their soul, that God, today they would consider the possibility that that they've been serving the wrong master. And Lord, I pray that after the service, they would come and talk to myself or one of the other elders and make a step toward you, a step of faith in putting their trust in you and, and no one else. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made for us, that we can enjoy day by day as we walk with you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Peace to you. God bless. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you soon.
Church family this morning.